Welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today, in episode 59, we're going to continue the story of one of our more notorious convicts, Alexander Pierce, the cannibal escapee. Last episode, we took a look at his background, how he found himself in Macquarie Harbour, and we finished up just as he and seven of his companions had made their escape. They had intended to make their way to Hobart, or beyond, by sea, but they were forced to change plans at the last minute. Instead, they had to attempt trekking overland on foot, covering some very rough country, with very few provisions, through unknown terrain. Only eight days in, starving, and in a bad way physically and psychologically, things turned very black indeed. If you haven't already listened to episode 58, you might like to do that first, so that you have the background context for today's story, and then we'll get straight back into the narrative, now that the men are beginning to crack. Before I begin, I send my thanks to Michelle G, who sent through a generous contribution to help keep this independent podcast afloat. Michelle, you've been regularly supporting me almost from the start, so I send you warm thanks. I'm delighted to know that as an American, you also find these Australian stories of interest, and I'm very glad that you've been enjoying them all this time. And thanks also to Regina M for your support. Okay then, so this next part of Pierce's story recounts their escape and their descent into violence and cannibalism, so it's not a very cheery tale, but let's get stuck in. Now, I just want to give my listeners a warning for this episode. I'll be quoting directly from some of Pierce's confessions and other evidence recorded, so this episode will not be a suitable one to listen to in the company of the kiddies, or indeed, perhaps for anyone with a delicate constitution. So do be mindful of that today. For the rest of us, let's return to Pierce's shocking story. Just to remind you where we left off last time, Pierce was one of eight men who had planned an escape from the Macquarie Harbour at Sarah Island site of secondary punishment, a hellhole of hard labour and penance designed to house and break the persistent lawbreakers. The other men involved were Alexander Dalton, Thomas Boddenham, William Kennelly, Edward or William or, in Pierce's confession, James Brown, John Mather, Matthew Travers and Robert Greenhill, the man who would become the leader of the group. Initially, they intended to take a boat and raid a supply depot to get the provisions that they would need to make it to Hobart. But they were discovered and had to change plans to avoid being captured. Instead of taking to the water, the group took off into the bush, planning to bear east and trudge their way to the outskirts of Hobart. But they were not prepared for the rugged terrain, the sapping cold and the extremely difficult conditions in trying to make their way through the sometimes impenetrable bush. Worst of all, being foiled so early, they had very few provisions now, and they ran out of food only days into their escape attempt. In a very short time, some began talking of turning back as their physical and mental condition deteriorated. But, unwisely, one evening, around the eighth day out, someone joked about how desperately hungry they were, hungry enough to eat a man. Well, that's not a thought you want to put out there amongst violent and desperate starving men. So we'll take up the story again at that dangerous point, the evening cannibalism was first mentioned out loud. 
Again, I'm going to be reading extracts directly from some of Pierce's surviving confession documents. But just to reiterate, they do contain some gruesome descriptions of murder and dismemberment, and I have abridged it slightly in places, mainly for clarity, but also added some comments. So here we go. We were all disputing this night who should get wood for the fire. Some bought it and made fires for themselves. Kennelly made some tinder this night and put it by, as he had some intention of returning to the settlement. Three days before at this, our tinder got wet. We were very cold and hungry. Kenley said he was so hungry he could eat a piece of man. So here we are now, back at the pivotal point of the story, taking up where we left off in part one, last episode. Next morning when we started, four of us happened to be in front of the others. Greenhill was the first who introduced the subject. That's the subject of killing one of their companions and eating him, and said that he had seen the like done before, and that it tasted very like pork. Ew! Well, that'll make my Sunday roast a little less attractive. (laughs) But Greenhill was a sailor, and convention tells us that this kind of thing can happen at sea at least, so now the story gets very shocking and gruesome. Mather spoke out and said that it would be murder to do it, and then perhaps they could not eat it. I'll warrant you, said Greenhill, I will eat the first part myself, but you must all lend a hand, that we may be equally guilty of the crime. We then consulted who should fall. Greenhill said, Dalton, we will kill him, as he had volunteered to be a flogger. Now Collins and other sources suggest there was no evidence that Dalton had ever volunteered to wield the lash, but certainly Greenhill must have disliked him, given that there were weaker candidates within the group, perhaps. When we stopped at night, Dalton, Brown and Kennelly had a fire by themselves. About three o'clock in the morning, Dalton was asleep. Greenhill got up, took an axe and struck him on the head with it, which killed him. Brown and Kennelly were probably asleep, unaware of what was about to happen, until it happened. But Pierce had willingly cooperated with the others in allowing Greenhill to proceed. And there is a disturbing coldness in that, particularly because Dalton had been Pierce's particular companion previously. Travers took a knife, cut his throat with it, and bled him. Travers had been a slaughterman in the old country, so the task was not entirely unfamiliar to him, albeit a different carcass. We then dragged the body some distance, cut off his clothes, tore his inside out, and cut off his head. Then Mather, Travers, and Greenhill put his heart and liver on the fire to broil, but took them off and ate them before they were right hot. Oh, gruesome. I remember being repulsed by the offal the Antarctic explorers were eating, but this is beyond ghastly. I can imagine hunger and the desire to survive will make men do repulsive and desperately awful things, and, you know, (laughs) never say never. But still, I don't see how you could physically keep down the partially cooked liver of someone you'd just been walking with. Oh, God... They asked the rest would they have any, but we would not eat any that night. Next morning the body was cut up and divided into equal parts, which we took 
and proceeded on our journey a little after sunrise. About this time there was a man appointed to go in front every day who had nothing to carry but was to clear the path for the others. Kennelly and Brown said they would carry the tin pots and a little tomahawk which were given them. We had not gone more than a quarter of a mile from the fires before discovering they were missing. We stopped and cooed but got no answer, nor could we see anything of them. We then said among ourselves that they had turned back as they had got sight of Gordon's River and that they would hang us all, but we thought it was no use to go in pursuit of them as they would not be able to make their way back. Now Brown, along with Kenley, did turn back once they were aware of the level of violence their companions were capable of. No doubt Brown in particular concerned that, as the weakest link, he might end up on their next menu. The men both made it back to Macquarie Harbour, arriving after about 12 days out in total, but the return journey had taken its toll, and both men died anyway from exhaustion and malnutrition within a few days of reaching the settlement. I guess they had no knowledge of the best way to help revive starving men in those days. We know from the Mawson Antarctic series that Recovery from starvation is a slow, cautious process if you are to survive. What little information Brown and Kenley were able to give the authorities indicated that they had just decided to return simply because they thought their chances of survival was better at Sarah Island than in proceeding. Apparently they remained silent on the matter of murder and the cannibalism that had occurred before they left the group. On the morning they fled from the rest of the group, they would have been carrying a portion of Dalton's flesh that had been cut up and divided between the group to carry. Whether they became desperate enough to eat it, I don't know. The authorities would have assumed the rest of the men still out there would inevitably perish too, given the fate of the returned men, so they probably gave the remaining escaped convicts very little further thought. Let's return again to Pierce's account and see how the five remaining men fared, using their recent companion as sustenance. We then proceeded for four days through a very bad country, till we came to a large river, which we thought to be Gordon's River, but was actually the Franklin River, further to the west. We stopped for a day and two nights looking for a place to cross. We felled two trees, but the stream was so rapid it swept them away instantly. At last we came to a place where a rock projected from the other side to the middle of the river. Travers and Boddenham couldn't swim. The rest of us swam over and cut a pole thirty or forty feet long, which we stretched across from the rock and drew the other two over. We kindled a fire and stopped all night at this place. Mather took a purging and begged we would remain a little longer. And here, I'm unsure if he means he had consumed something to try and relieve constipation, or if he was being physically ill, vomiting. Perhaps Dalton didn't agree with him. Either way, he was clearly uncomfortable and needed to cease walking for a time. So we remained another night. We then got up a hill on the opposite side with great difficulty, it being so steep. It was barren ground for miles beyond this hill. John Mather had the tinder in his breast this day. 
and I take tinder here to mean a flint and some easily ignitable material that would be kept dry and would be required for lighting the fires, so a pretty important bit of kit for their survival. And by some means it had dropped down his trousers, and when he could not find it, Travers lifted up an axe and said he would kill him immediately if it was not produced. But it was found soon after. We lay this night under the cliff of a rock, and next morning we were scarcely able to move for the cold and wet. We then proceeded for four days through very barren and scrubby ground, till we came to a very fine plain, where we agreed to stop all night. We were all in a very weak state. Travers, Greenhill and Mather went aside and consulted who should be killed now. Bodenham did not know anything of this. They returned to the fire and desired Mather and me to go and get some wood while Bodenham would warm himself. Okay, I've got a bad feeling about this. (laughs) Travers says you will hear it immediately. So in about two minutes, I heard a blow given, and Mather said, he is done for. I returned to the place. Greenhill had hit him with the axe. Travers cut his throat, and they laid him out. Greenhill took his shoes, being better than his own. The heart and liver was all that was made use of that night. We thought, as we had now plenty of provisions, it would be better to take a day's rest, which we did. Next morning, we divided the dead body and proceeded on our way through a marshy ground for three days, bearing to our right. We then crossed the first western tier. We could see a great length from the top of the mountains. On the other side, there was marshy ground, with a large river in the middle of it, and very fine trees growing on the banks. We stopped there all night and proceeded up the side of the river for three days to get more to the left. We saw plenty of kangaroos, emus and game of all kinds. And it's worth noting, on the few occasions they saw such game, they were unable to catch any to assist their cause. Our provisions were all out again, and we said to ourselves that we would all die rather than any more should be killed. Mather and I went on one side, and he said, Pierce, let us go on by ourselves. You see what kind of a cove Greenhill is. He would kill his father before he would fast one day. We went on for two or three days after this, through a very fine country, where we could see seventy miles without a bush. Then we came to a little creek of fresh water under Sugarloaf Hill, where we boiled some fern and drank it. Mather took his first, and it made him so sick he began to vomit. Greenhill started up, took an axe and struck him on the forehead. Mather shouted, Murder! You will see me killed! He, being stronger than Greenhill, wrested the axe from him, and he threw it to me to keep. We then went on a little farther to another creek, when we took up our lodging that night. I went to a little distance after we stopped, and on looking round saw Travers and Greenhill collaring Mather, who cried out, Murder! And when he found they were determined to have his life, he begged they would give him half an hour to pray for himself, which was granted, and a prayer book given to him, which we happened to have with us. And here's one of those sections where the narrative differs somewhat in different versions of his confessions. Like Collins, I have to wonder about the truthfulness and accuracy of Pierce's testimony here, where he seems to soften their behaviour, 
and he always suggests how far removed he was from all the bloodshed. Certainly he seems conveniently away from the brutal violence, except the eating of the resulting flesh, of course. But the story of carrying a prayer book all that way and allowing Mather so much time to pray and prepare for his death seems unlikely and quite macabre to me. It's a sensational story, but then you have to think actually these things really did happen to actual human beings. So awful. When the time was expired, he returned the prayer book to me and laid down his head. Greenhill immediately took up an axe and killed him. We stopped two days in this place and then proceeded on our journey, each taking a share of Mather's body. Now, in the Knopwood recorded confession, there was a gap of two days between when Mather was first attacked and his final slaughter. In between, he walked with Pierce and kept his distance from the other two, telling Pierce they should look out for each other and that Pierce had agreed. But in the following days, Pierce in fact withdrew somewhat and allied himself with Greenhill and Travers, pretty much ensuring that Mather would be killed that night, all three attacking him. Though again, Pierce does not admit to being the man who swung the axe. But it seems afterwards, even though Pierce must naturally have been next for the block, with Mather now gone, given the clear bond between Greenhill and Travers, there was some optimism, with Greenhill suggesting they must have been getting close to the settled regions. I wonder if Pierce believed and took comfort in that. Within days they had moved into more open, though boggy, country, possibly the Loddon Plains, and found the going a little easier and the weather somewhat improved now that they were more sheltered from the west coast. But despite these good omens, they were about to experience another setback. We then got to the second tier of mountains. We had to remain four or five days owing to Travers having his foot stung or bit by some venomous animal and here it is thought that he may have been bitten by a snake, perhaps a tiger snake, which is quite capable of inflicting a fatal bite, but which may have been only emerging from its hibernation and not lively enough for a good hard venom-packed bite. Travers was certainly physically ill and unable to continue walking for several days, as the foot became inflamed and painful and swollen, but he looked like he might survive the immediate bite. At this point, they would have been well into the country of the Big River and Oyster Bay language groups, whose country reached right across most of the southwest and across the centre and east, encompassing the Hobart area too. Collins suggests that the Big River people may not have lived in the more difficult, inhospitable landscapes that the men were largely walking through. They would still have known and managed the country, and they would have known the most suitable trails and paths to move through it into the Oyster Bay country, moving east. Certainly Pierce and his companions would have been observed as they travelled, but being in such a weak state, they were unlikely to be perceived as any threat. If they had been, they could easily have been killed, probably before they even knew they were being confronted. Later Pierce was to come across Aboriginal camps too. His foot having improved, we proceeded over the second tier on the seventh day after Mather's death. After we had crossed the tier, we came to a very large river, we made a fire and stopped there two nights and one day. Greenhill and I went up and down looking for a narrow place to cross, as Travers could not swim. Greenhill and I swam across. He carried the axe and I took the provisions that remained. We cut a long wattle pole and put it across the river and pulled Travers over. Next morning we went on for two days through very fine country. 
Trevor's foot began to inflame again and turned black, and he said it was better for us to go on and leave him there. So gangrene was setting in to the poisoned foot. It was clear the bite was not going to recover, leaving him less and less able to walk, and he would have known his chances of getting through now were reducing. His big horror was that the men would mutilate his body and eat him, as they had done with the others, despite Greenhill's assurance that they would not. So he urged them to leave him behind and continue on. One version of Pierce's narrative records Greenhill stating he would never think of leaving Travers, that he would carry him if necessary. But a close friendship can only go so far under these circumstances, apparently. Greenhill and I went to get a little wood. He says, Pierce, it's no use being detained any longer by Travers, and we will serve him as the rest. I told him I would not have any hand in his death. When we came back, Travers, being fatigued or worn out from the pain in his foot, was then asleep. Greenhill immediately lifted the axe and hit him twice on the head, and then cut his throat. Again, though, in a different version, he admits that he agreed with Greenhill, and it's possible, given Greenhill's close association with Travers, that Pierce might have been charged with actually killing him. Collins quotes from one of the versions that Greenhill, quote, was much affected by this horrid scene and stood quite motionless to see one who had been his companion compelled to be slaughtered for food, unquote. But Greenhill was a pragmatist, and when Travers' time came, their relationship didn't stop Greenhill from making use of his friend for sustenance. Okay, so then there were two. We stopped two days at this place, and then each took as much of the body of Travers as we could carry, and proceeded on our journey, keeping rather to the left through a very fine country, the weather beginning to get better. As Collins noted, Pierce must have been grateful for the snake bite. If Travers had not naturally become weak and the obvious next dinner, no doubt they would have both looked to Pierce next. We then got over the third tier of western mountains till we came to another large river at the foot of the third tier and stopped there all night. Next morning we crossed the river. We came to a most delightful part of the country where the grass was very long. Greenhill now began to fret and he said he would never get to any part with his life. I kept up my spirits all along and thought we must shortly come to some inhabited part of the country from the very great length we had travelled. Possibly remorseful and depressed over the loss of his friend, Greenhill was beginning to lose hope that they would ever make it to civilization. But Pierce was now quite buoyed. They appear to have stumbled across Aboriginal camps in this area, the inhabitants having disappeared into the surrounds on hearing their approach, no doubt, and they took the food remnants they found there. It's worth noting, Hughes records this happening after Pierce was travelling alone, quoting Sprod's book, as well as the Bisdy Confession, so the different versions Pierce later retold don't always confirm the same details. But obviously, things were about to get more tense. Both men were in a very weakened state, near naked and without shoes, they were cut and bruised and constantly exposed to the cold, and their bodies would have been deteriorating from the malnutrition. With hunger once again taking its effect, still the men travelled together, though now <laughs> no one was getting much sleep. 
Pierce may have thought of sneaking away from Greenhill for his own safety, but despite the horror of what he was risking, he seemed to have had an equal horror of being alone. He may have felt he still needed Greenhill for navigation, but it was a risky strategy, if you ask me. I watched Greenhill for two nights, as I thought he eyed me more than usual. He always kept the axe under his head when he laid down, and he carried it on his back when walking. One night we came to a little creek between two hills, where we kindled a fire. Our provisions had been out some days before. I thought Greenhill had determined to kill me, for his looking at me and watching me so narrowly. Near daybreak he fell asleep. I instantly seized the opportunity and took the axe from under his head, and struck him with it and killed him. I cut off part of his thigh and arm, which I took with me, and went on for several days till I had ate it all. So, Pierce was to be the last man standing in this real-life hunger games, of sorts. But he was still a long way from the settled areas, and he would have to navigate himself now. He was trying to make his way towards Table Mountain, actually situated a little north of Jericho. That was familiar country to Pierce, as he had ranged through this area during his early abscondment from his allocated work detail in the area, before being sent to Macquarie Harbour. There were numerous Irish convicts working as shepherds and labourers in this region, including men Pierce knew, and Pierce felt they would likely shelter him while he recovered if he could only make his way there. But he was pretty uncertain as to his present location, and he was soon without food again. I went on for two days more without anything. I then took a piece of bag and was going to hang myself. But I took another notion, and went on a little farther, and came to a fire where I found some pieces of kangaroo and opossums. So once again he got lucky, stumbling across an Aboriginal camp, and the men of the group must have decided to leave him be. I ate what I could of them, and carried the remainder with me. I travelled on for several days till I came to a marsh, where I saw a duck and ten young ones. I leaped into the water. The old one flew off, and the young ones dived. I stood in the water up to my middle for a short time. Two of the young ducks appeared at my feet, and I caught them both. Pierce had done well catching his small meal, but he was by then without any flint and tinder, and had to scoff them raw. After this, I put up at a little creek about two hours before dark. Next morning I got on top of a hill, and looking round me I saw a large mountain, which I took to be Table Mountain. So he was making some kind of progress, only days after considering suicide, but he was still in a very fragile psychological state. He said that during this period, travelling alone, he always felt like he was being watched, that he experienced a paranoia that had him screaming into the wilderness, Come out, you bastard, and face me! Most of the time he was probably generating anxiety in his own head, but while at the marsh, Pierce did notice he was being observed by two Aboriginal men. Despite carrying very fierce-looking spears, the men were not threatening in any way. Most likely they were stunned and curious about the weird behaviour of the inept white man. Collins writes that the first Australians, quote, saw the whites as not only violent people, but also as amazingly stupid when it came to surviving in what they experienced as a plentiful land, unquote. 
given Pierce's lack of survival skills for the Australian bush, and, notwithstanding his foray into cannibalism, he had actually managed an astounding feat in surviving to reach this point. I went on a little further and came to the big river at the high plains, and travelled along it for two days, till I came to a flock of sheep at the falls. I drove them forward to a scrub and caught hold of a large one, but being very weak, it carried me off and I had to let it go. I drove them to another place, caught a lamb and ate it raw. So clearly he had now reached the edge of settlement. He had been out forty days already when he murdered Greenhill. Pierce had finally come across these sheep and signs of settlement near Maguire's Marsh. The hut-keeper arrived and threatened to shoot me if I did not stop immediately. He put some questions to me, and he knew me, having been together before. He took me to a hut and gave me plenty to eat. Now what a remarkable stroke of luck that he had not only stumbled into the locality of an Irish convict, but someone who had worked with him before. He told the shepherd of his escape and his terrible journey, well, some of it, but Pierce seems to have been less than forthcoming about the actual fate of his companions. Certainly, if he'd admitted to eating them, a welcome to the shepherd's hut might not have been offered. <laughs> I stopped there three days. He said his master was coming up and that I could not stay any longer, so he brought me down to the river and took me across to Mrs. Lord's hut, where I stopped a week. He got me rum, etc., and everything he thought I could take, and I made it to another hut which belonged to Tom Farrell, and I stopped there three weeks, sometimes in the hut and sometimes out. And so he seemed to eat and sleep for many days before slowly returning to health. But being an escaped felon, they all needed to be careful that he would not be discovered while he recuperated, and he even spent time in a small hut in the bush that he had built himself when he was on the run the first time to stay out of sight. Later, he met up with two other escaped convicts, Ralph Churton and William Davis, and he took up bushranging with them, remaining at large for another seven weeks. Obviously, he was keen to be in company again, rather than hiding alone in the huts. He seemed to have a real dread of being on his own. He was with Davis and Churton on January 11, 1823, when his spectacular luck was to come to an end. Soldiers of the 48th Regiment, acting on a tip-off, found them holed up near Lake Tiberius. And they were all captured and returned to Hobart in chains. He had been on the run for 113 days, half of it traversing the Tasmanian wilderness. He had travelled at least 150 kilometres or 93 miles before reaching the settled districts across extremely difficult country that no white man had ever seen before. It was quite the feat of endurance, and it was clearly psychologically taxing as well as physically. It's likely he was a substantially traumatised man after his ordeal. Certainly he seemed pretty keen to unburden himself of the horror he had witnessed and been party to when he was finally brought before the authorities in Hobart. When he was questioned by the officers, he seemed to have spoken openly about the murder and cannibalism that had taken place during the epic trek he'd undertaken, and he soon made a formal statement to the Hobart magistrate 
Minister Knopwood. This formal interview was very important as the authorities needed to gather and understand as much information as possible about his experience. After all, he was one of the first Europeans to successfully traverse the western wilderness. If the wild area between Macquarie Harbour and the settlement near Hobart was not as impenetrable as expected, they needed to know. And so he was to describe where and when he reached various landmarks and what the conditions and terrain were like. But he also voluntarily confessed to witnessing murders and to participating in the shocking and barbaric acts of cannibalism. But this confession proved to be incomprehensible to Knotwood. Why would Pierce so readily implicate himself in such awful crimes? I'm not sure how Knotwood envisaged what the men survived on in the bush. Maybe imagining wild animals simply jumped into their fires. But however he imagined it, Pierce's story of desperation and starvation leading to cannibalism seemed so bizarre and unnatural to Knotwood that he refused to believe him. After all, white Christian men would not do such a thing. Cannibalism would be too abhorrent even for a low-life Irishman, surely. As Hughes put it, quote, This grotesque tall story could only be the invention of a felon's debased mind. Unquote. Knopwood thought Pierce's record showed him as always in trouble and totally untrustworthy, so he was probably lying again right now to cover for the other men still at large, presumably living as bushrangers, as Pierce had been when he was captured, the scourge of the Tasmanian fringes. But he was certainly giving too much credit to Pierce for having some kind of honour amongst thieves. Pierce would not hesitate to lag any man if there was something in it for him. But somehow, Knopwood and the other officials involved simply refused to believe his confession. More likely, they thought, he was covering for all of them. The cannibalism was the truly noteworthy thing about this story. Plenty of convicts escaped, or tried to escape, and plenty fought and killed each other when they were under pressure. But to have breached the massive taboo and eaten another human was shocking and barbaric and almost impossible for fine upstanding Christian men to believe. Though they were clearly titillated thinking about it, rumours of the horror buzzed around Hobart. Actually, it was probably convenient for the authorities to ignore much of Pierce's stories for other reasons too. To charge him with murder, they would need to send men into the wilderness and retrieve the bodies as evidence. Then they would need to go to the trouble of trying him. Perhaps if he did eat the other escapees, they deserved what they got. It would be easier just to treat him as a recaptured absconder and send him straight back to Macquarie Harbour. And so they did. And that was that. In November 1823, Pierce returned to Sarah Island to complete his hard labour sentence, this time in shackles, along with the news of his successful escape. I say successful because he had made it through the wilds and back to the colonised areas, even though he didn't remain at large, a feat the authorities said was impossible. But even with some of the details about how his feat had been achieved, like the rumour that he was a man-eater, he was celebrated as a convict hero and looked up to for having actually made it out alive. Given the authorities did not charge him, it may not have been clear beyond the rumours just exactly what had occurred in Pierce's party. 
His presence proved that this inescapable place was in fact escapable. The proof was now in their midst. It would have given others hope, and he reveled in telling his fellow convicts selected tales from his journey. So there he was, back in chains, but Pierce was not a man who could quietly do his time. There is more to the story of Alexander Pierce, and it doesn't bode well. It is bizarre to me that his confession was ignored. It's quite a macabre story to fabricate, and a very detailed one, which casts him in a very bad light and makes him unnatural and a monster. But he did tell his story to a number of people, and while the Knopwood record is quite a detailed explanation of what occurred, there were apparently some discrepancies noted in his stories, which added to their suspicions. Pierce implied that the early murders were principally undertaken by Greenhill, who had charge of the axe they carried with them, and the butchering of the bodies was assisted by his close mate Travers, who had possession of a large knife. He notes, though, that Greenhill had insisted everyone partake in the human meat and carry portions of it, so that they would all be guilty of the grisly crimes. So it also seems likely, early on at least, that he might have wanted others to undertake the murders too. It's not certain who eventually killed Travers, but clearly, when only Pierce and Greenhill remained, Pierce certainly murdered Greenhill, mostly to stop Greenhill from murdering him, sure, <laughs> so I guess he might have thought that was self-defence and he did admit to consuming the human flesh to sustain himself. Those living comfortably in Hobart, who were most appalled by his explanations, might not be very realistic to think that they would not do the same under such circumstances. The original official documentation recorded by Knotwood's clerk has been lost, but copies survive, and the recollections of those he spoke to also survive, along with later recorded confessions like the one given to Lieutenant Cuthbertson at Sarah Island. Pierce's admissions given before his execution also survive, including those recording his actions during his second escaped attempt from Macquarie Harbour, which we'll look at in more detail in the final Pierce episode, Part 3, coming up next. No doubt other punishments would be meted out for his escape, but as mentioned earlier, he would also return as a convict celebrity of sorts. As the news got around about the returning escapee, he would have had a level of admiration and respect amongst the prisoners for actually making it across the no-man's land between them and freedom. He would tell gruesome tales of the murder and cannibalism which occurred in his escape party, but of course he was never the evil instigator. It was Greenhill doing that evil. Despite the rumoured stories of his involvement, he claimed he was separated from the others and didn't participate in the extreme violence, and couldn't say exactly who did what to whom. Collins states that most of the desperate men listening would have ignored the inconsistencies in his stories and just focused on the fact that he made it out. And he encouraged them to believe that strong, determined men could succeed and this attitude made him an attractive friend to those who desired to escape themselves, despite, well, to me at least, his rather dangerous approach to survival. There were some amongst the prisoners who were particularly impressed and interested, and would press him to lead them out, but Pierce sometimes found all the questions and attention a bit irritating too, so there was a level of ambivalence in his situation there. 
On his return to Sarah Island, he was held for some time in solitary, but eventually he was returned to the work gangs, though he had to work with his heavy irons on at all times. One man who seemed particularly interested in the details of his attempt was the 21-year-old Englishman Thomas Cox, who'd been given a life sentence originally for robbery. Cox seems to have navigated the system in Hobart with little trouble for his first two years, and might have looked forward to getting his ticket of leave in good time, but in his third year he seemed to have regularly got into trouble, resulting in punishments in the stocks or by the lash. Finally, he took off altogether, making his way to Launceston before being recaptured, and he was then sent to Sarah Island as a persistent troublemaker. But like Pierce himself, Cox could not accept his sentence there, and though only at Macquarie Island for a couple of months, he constantly contemplated his escape. When Pierce arrived back and was assigned to the same work detail as Cox, Cox immediately began trying to convince Pierce to try again. Despite his talk of bravado and his celebrity status, Pierce was not keen to try and hack his way through the bush again. He may well have been somewhat traumatised by his previous ordeal. Certainly he knew how punishing trying to cross the wilderness could be, and he initially point-blank refused to entertain the idea. Cox and Pierce's work gang was once again operating in the Kelly Basin area, under overseer Loggins. Collins writes that Cox, already being keen to try his luck, had managed to gather some useful items for an escape attempt, including some fishing hooks, a knife and tinder items. Certainly these would have made survival out there more viable, and he again tried to convince Pierce to abscond with him. Now let's just think about that for a minute. He was badgering Pierce, the successful escapee, but rumoured murderer and cannibal, to join him in escaping through the acknowledged punishing wilderness. Cox either had a death wish or he was not a very bright boy. I mean, how did he think it might end? His capacity to consider all likely scenarios was clearly limited. Man, I'm still shaking my head. Still, we must consider the mindset of these men to begin to understand how such risks seemed attractive at all. The following reflection was recorded by a man visiting the site and conversing with the long-time settlement clerk there. Quote, there is a despair eating at the hearts of the convicts, turning them against each other, driving them to madness and murder. These men are chained and worked as beasts of burden are. They are treated as animals are. If this is what the king and the governors want to happen here, then this is no country to live in, and if they cannot escape... They prefer to die. There is scarcely a man here who does not have tattooed on arm or chest a circle and inside the circle the letters D and L. It is the mark of their brotherhood, death or liberty. Unquote. So for Cox, it seemed he was firmly focused on death or liberty. Pierce had no desire to go out into that wilderness again and the leg irons he now wore would add a degree of difficulty, even if he thought it possible, and for a time he resisted Cox's pleas. But when Pierce had his shirt stolen, he knew he would be liable for fifty lashes punishment for being careless with his kit. So if he was going to be whipped anyway, maybe that extra impetus made up his mind. And so he finally agreed to accompany Cox in an escape. No... 
don't do it. So we'll finish up today and look at Pierce's second escape attempt from Macquarie Harbour in the final instalment of the story next time. And let's just say it doesn't end happily. Now I'm going to recommend an unusual podcast for you to try this episode. In fact, it's not strictly a podcast, but rather recordings of past lectures given by Professor Richard Broom at La Trobe University called Australian Aboriginal History and released for public access via the generosity of Professor Richard Broom, La Trobe University and the Royal Historical Society of Victoria. I may have mentioned it before a long time back as a colonial Australian descent myself who was exposed to very little information about our Australian Indigenous history during my formal education. I found this series of lectures really thought-provoking and enlightening. I will of course provide links to the series webpage on my refer- in my reference list so you can click through and see what's covered in the series there but you can simply search for Australian Aboriginal History in your preferred podcast platform, and it will likely come up that way too. Just check that it's The One by Richard Broom. The Royal Historical Society of Victoria describes the 16-part series as, quote, providing listeners with insights into Australia's colonial past and makes First Nations history the dominant narrative. In doing so, it acknowledges the rights of our First Nations people to land and sea. It allows a wider audience to understand the impacts of government policies and frontier conflicts on First Nations people. And it embraces and celebrates the stories of Indigenous success and contribution, unquote. I've been discovering and listening to a few other podcasts recently too, so I do have a number of good recommendations coming up in the future episodes. If you have a favourite you think might fit in with the genres I usually include in my recommendations, and the topics have been pretty broad over the years, I'd love to hear about it. Drop me a DM on Twitter or Facebook, or send through an email. The addresses and links are available from the podcast webpage at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au, histories being spelt with an I-E-S. And you can check there for additional material for this episode too. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, and I'll talk with you again soon to complete the story of the notorious Alexander Pierce. Now he had been Cheers. looking at me funny, sort of eyeing me for days. And you would not need to be too bright to know that bastard's ways. He was a sick man, he had murder in his heart. But even bastards have to rest, and even bastards have to sleep. And when he was in the land of nuts, straight over I did creep And the axe that he had wielded now was mine So that night I made the fire Out of twigs and out of bark And my stomach, it kept rumbling all through the night so dark I can't say that I enjoyed it And it wasn't exactly fun But when the sun came up next morning Well, I do it ten to one And I said, right, there's another one Don't you frown to me and hold it down Get down a whole bunch.